Welcome. Hi. Well, Happy New Year. Uh, my name is Tim Lorden. I'm the, Congress the Executive Director of the Internet Education Foundation, which has a few projects, one of which is the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee. So um, this is the beginning of our 2016 season. This is the first briefing of the year. We'll do about 15 or 16 of these every couple of weeks or so on different topics. Um, and this one is, happens to be on consumer reviews. The Congressional Internet Caucus itself is, we host this in conjunction with them, the co-chairs of which are Congressman Bob Goodlatte in the House, as well as Congresswoman Anna Eshoo. And the Senate side, we have Senator John Thune and Senator Patrick Leahy as our co-chairs. This year, the Congressional Internet Caucus will be celebrating its 20th anniversary, um, create, founded in 1996. So if you're if you work on internet issues, try to imagine where the internet was and where you were in 1996, and you can just see how, how ancient this particular organization is. So um, thanks for coming. Um, you also have a little bit of a housekeeping. Um, you also have a flyer for the State of the Net Conference, which we also produce, and that's basically like the entire year's program on internet issues in one day, which is a short walk from here at the museum. That's on uh, a, week from to, a week from Monday. So on January 25th, so welcome to that. And then um, to start this thing off, this is called Gagged by the Fine Print, Protecting Consumer Rights to Share Reviews Online. And I'll just hand it off to the moderator in a second, but if you're on Twitter, you can follow this program at NetCaucusAC is our Twitter handle. And the hashtag to join the conversation is Consumer Reviews. Is that singular or plural? Consumer, consumer speech. speech, forgive me. The hashtag is consumer speech. So leaving it off to Miranda Bogan, who's our moderator today. She's a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. She was also our summer fellow last year for the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee and all of our other projects. So I'm just going to leave it off to Miranda. All right. Thanks, Tim. Um, and thanks to our panelists for being here. I'll just introduce everyone pretty quickly, and then we'll get started. Uh, down at the end, we have Professor Eric Goldman, who's from the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara University School of Law out in California. And we also have Brad Young down from TripAdvisor in Boston, and Carl Settlemeyer from the uh, Federal Trade Commission, the Division of Advertising Practices, very relevant, and George Slover, the Senior Policy Counsel at Consumers Union. Um, obviously, this is an issue relevant to consumers, so it should be a, a pretty interesting discussion. We have a lot of angles to look at the issue from, but uh, to start off, you know, we're talking about consumer rights, specifically um, protections for consumers to voice their opinions online in a number of ways. As you see more review sites popping up, there are more opportunities for consumers and, and anyone to share their opinions, both with the businesses that they're dealing with, give them feedback, but also with their fellow consumers, um, sharing their experience to advise people on, on where to choose for their next vacation, which products to buy. Um, this should theoretically be driving competition because businesses will need to compete on the quality of their products and services. And that's happening, of course. You know, we've seen that a lot. But we also see businesses trying to push back. Uh, we see businesses trying to sometimes silence critical reviews that might hurt their business. Um, and, and obviously, they're doing this in a number of ways. They do the through intimidation in various capacities. We, last summer, in August, we did a review on strategic lawsuits against public participation, which are um, suits that are filed after the reviews are up, saying this is defamation. Um, but right now, today, we're talking about clauses buried in the fine print of user agreements and contracts that actually say, um, you can't post negative reviews of, of my business online, or you'll be fined or, or held accountable in some other way. Um, so to kick off the discussion, I want to start with a hypothetical, and we can talk about it from there. 
So imagine a family has been saving up all year to go on vacation, and they get to their hotel, they're so excited, and they find that the room is dirty, the service is bad, um, the, the shower doesn't work, and so after their vacation, one of the family members leaves the review online saying, you know, this, is, this was the situation, uh, maybe check out a different place if you're thinking of going on vacation. Uh, they get notified soon after that they, the hotel contacts them, saying you've actually violated the agreement that you signed with us when you checked into the hotel. And uh, if you don't take that review down, we're going to fine you. It was in the contract. Um, so, and they already have your credit card on file, so they could do that. So, you know, Brad at TripAdvisor, you probably see this quite a bit. Um, what's the situation here? How frequent is this happening? How frequently is this happening? You know, how do you help consumers navigate these clauses? Sure. Um, so to, to really level set that question, we don't have great visibility into exactly how uh, prominent this issue really is, right? These clauses, by definition, are intended to chill speech and to stifle speech. And so the best ones we never hear about because they're doing exactly what they intended to do. No one's talking about them, and they're not getting fined. The business is happy because they're not getting negative reviews, and the consumer, while probably not happy that they don't get to write their review, isn't getting fined, which may be the, uh, the best of two bad situations. What we do know, though, is last year in 2015, TripAdvisor uh, received a couple thousand requests from our members to remove reviews in connection with uh, statements from these users saying, I want it removed because I'm being harassed by the business owner that I've reviewed. And in some of those situations, they went, the members went even further and provided us with statements either saying, you know, there's a clause in the contract that says I'm not allowed to write this, or I'm going to be fined if I write this, I've assigned the copyright in this, or sometimes they'll even give us a copy of that language. So we do see it, and we definitely know that it is a real-world problem that's taking place. That said, so... That's a big number, right? But that's really, we believe, the tip of the iceberg. The person, the, the, the reviewer who is going to take the step to, A, first write a review, which is probably not everybody, right? A lot more people are going to TripAdvisor and reading than writing every review. So someone that's going to go and write a review, and then when they get contacted by these people, going to go out of their way to tell us, hey, here's why I'm taking it down, and here's what the clause looks like, that's the very proactive minority. I sort of think of it as an iceberg problem. We're seeing the 5% above water. We are not seeing the 95% of all this nefarious action that's under the water. That's a really big problem for consumers and businesses uh, across the country. And that's just in the hospitality sector, right? TripAdvisor has listings for hotels, restaurants, and attractions. Um, that's, we don't know anything about the mechanics and the doctors and the dentists and the home repair professionals and the big box store retailers and the various internet sites. They're doing exactly this too, but because they don't have a listing on TripAdvisor, we'll never hear of it. So yeah, it's a real issue and it's, it's not going away on its own. Yeah, um, Professor Goldman, you've been writing about this for a while. Uh, you've been following legislation around it. Can you tell us what, what's happening legally here? What do these clauses look like? Um, why, you know, what happens when they're taken to court? What's happening here? Uh, 
So again, the premise is uh, how can a business stop consumers from talking about them online? And they can use a variety of different techniques. We've already identified a few of them. Let me just make uh, sure that we didn't miss them. One is you can just say in a contract, you may not talk about us online or you may not say anything negative about us online. The second way is that you could set it up as a, uh, as a penalty. You could say, um, if you say anything about us online or if you say anything negative about us online, we will fine you or we will uh, otherwise create some uh, negative incentive. We'll deposit, uh, hold back your security deposit if you put it in a deposit. Um, and what we've seen also is an extension of that is if people don't pay the fine, then the threat is uh, filing a negative report on their uh, credit report. So, you know, then uh, the business will then say, I'm going to ding your credit because you didn't pay the fine for having talked about us online when you shouldn't have done so. The third way we've seen it is by using some form of intellectual property to take control over the review. The most common of those approaches um, is to say that uh, the consumer assigns the right to the review um, to the business. So the business becomes the owner of that review, and then as owner, they can decide whether or not they want to allow it to be uh, published further. Um, each of those techniques um, uh, uh, show up. Um, there's probably others that uh, we've seen, and there's certainly others that will be invented. Um, and uh, in, we haven't seen a lot of court challenges over these uh, clauses. So though, uh, in my estimate, millions of Americans have signed some type of provision like this, uh, we've seen a very small number of challenges in court and even fewer final resolutions in court. When we have had these uh, types of clauses presented in court, generally judges get the point, and they say, you can't do that, and I'll try and find a way to work around the contract issue or the consumer law issue or the intellectual property issue in order to make sure that you can't do what you're trying to do business. Um, but as uh, Brad just explained, that's the iceberg problem. That's only that very top of the iceberg that's ending up in court, and there's lots of things that are happening before we ever get to court. Um, I do want to call your attention to one particular case that I find interesting, very relevant to the hypothetical. It was a case involving a uh, vacation rental where the vacation rental landlord said to the um, uh, to the renters, uh, you may not review us online. And we don't know how many people didn't review them online, how many people were chilled by that, but we know that two people did write reviews negatively about this hotel review and were sued. And in court, the case that stands out in my mind um, is when the court said that review was not defamatory. So, uh, landlord, you have no right to sue for defamation. But you might have a right to sue for breach of contract. They said they wouldn't review you. They reviewed you. That sounds like a breach of contract. I'd like to think calmer heads will prevail as the case goes on. But this is the reason why I think we need to pay very close attention to the law because it could be in front of a judge look like just a breach of contract. But we know better. Um, thanks. And so from the, we have the business perspective with the legal perspective, what do consumers think about this? What are you hearing um, from the people who are, who are victims of this? You know, we, we all go on websites and we click, I agree to these terms, and we don't really, I don't think any of us really read those unless maybe you're in law school or, or a lawyer and get a kick out of that. Um, do people know that this is even happening? What's going on? Well, thanks, Miranda. Uh, when I uh, heard about the problem of what are called non-disparagement clauses or gag clauses, my first thought was, hey, that's our people, the folks we care about, which uh, is everyone in this room, and it's everyone who has ever bought something and everyone who's ever had something bought for them. 
uh, are all affected by uh, this problem. Uh, one of the most important ways consumers get power in the marketplace is word of mouth. That is key to making sure the competitive marketplace works in the interests of consumers. And the Internet obviously enhances that consumer voice. And non-disparagement clauses are a direct frontal assault on that consumer voice. And the problem is bigger than just silencing negative reviews on the Internet, although that's kind of the, the reason why we're all here today. These non-disparagement clauses, when they are signed, cover all communications, all the way from putting an ad in the newspaper to potentially talking with neighbors and coworkers about an experience you've had. So uh, my second thought was, hey, that's us. I work for the policy and advocacy arm of Consumer Reports. For 80 years, we've been in the business of testing products and services and publishing objective, independent, expert ratings in our magazine and now in our online publications. We buy the products and services that we test for quality, safety, and durability in the regular marketplace, anonymously as ordinary consumers. That's a key part of making sure we are not getting special treatment, that we are getting the product or service the same way consumers are, so that we can tell consumers what they can expect to experience if they buy it. So if a purchase contract contains a non-disparagement clause, the business could threaten to silence us, to stop us from giving the straight, objective story to consumers. The further irony is that many or even most consumers who sign consumer sales agreements don't even know the clause is in there. And yet by signing or by clicking an I agree button, they supposedly agree to be bound by it. And contract law says they are bound. And even for consumers who do know it's there, they typically have no choice if they want the product or service. And the salesperson typically has no awareness or appreciation for what's at stake here. It's become just a routine part of the sale. So we're very glad the Senate took up this problem and passed legislation to fix it, to safeguard the consumer voice with overwhelming bipartisan support, by voice vote in committee, and by unanimous consent on the floor. The House will now follow in the weeks to come. Miranda, could I add something yeah. just on the, the contract uh, piece? Um, unquestionably, uh, in many cases, the um, restrictions on consumer reviews uh, will be buried in something that consumers aren't likely to see. But I don't think that that's a helpful way of thinking about the problem. I really think it's a helpful thing. Let's assume consumers understand exactly what they're being asked to do and are given full and uh, unambiguous disclosure. We still would view it as a distortion on the marketplace and still something that's unacceptable for consumers to agree to. And I'll jump in here. So I'm Carl Settlemeyer. I'm an attorney with the Federal Trade Commission. My views are my own, not necessarily those of the commission or any commissioner. And the commission has not formally taken a position on this uh, particular legislation. I can tell you what the commission has done in uh, exercising its authority under Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act, which prohibits deceptive and unfair acts and practices in commerce. The commission has challenged recently, in a case I've been involved with, um, the uh, practices of a company called Roca Labs, which has been selling a dietary supplement for which it was making, um, in the Commission's view, um, exaggerated and unsubstantiated weight loss claims, and coupled that with a practice of, uh, review, of, of offering to pay 
uh, customers for positive reviews and had the fine print in its contract um, restricting them from making negative comments. And they have actually were suing people for making negative comments, threatening people when they complained or if they filed a complaint with the Better Business Bureau. And the commission basically um, challenged that uh, practice of using these uh, threats and gag clauses as being unfair within the meaning of Section 5 of the FTC Act. So that means that the Commission has alleged that the practice of using these uh, provisions causes consumers substantial injury, that they're not likely, uh, that they cannot reasonably avoid, and that there's no countervailing benefits that outweigh that injury, um, which is a long way of saying in a way that this basically is a practice that uh, uh, distorts the marketplace, it damages consumer welfare. And the emphasis of the Commission's case isn't so much the fact that the uh, provision was buried in the fine print, which it is, but the fact that um, uh, this practice um, will deprive the marketplace of truthful information truthful negative information that will um, uh, be to the detriment of other consumers who come after us. So we're not even necessarily focusing on the harm directly to the people who've, who've clicked through and whose uh, uh, opinions are being suppressed. We're looking also more holistically at the, the um, uh, impact this has on uh, future purchasers who are deprived of negative information about that seller's products and who may end up paying more for a product than they would if they knew the truth about um, what the experience of the prior purchasers uh, had been, and they may be um, buying products that aren't good for them, and it's just overall bad for um, the entire uh, ecosystem to have reviews manipulated by having them basically being, being suppressed. So, Carl, when you, when you come across these issues um, and, and you find that, that the clauses are unfair under, under Section 5, what, what does the enforcement look like? Well, we've had uh, very little occasion to actually um, have enforcement against these type of things. I mean, Roca Labs is notable in the fact that it was not just sort of um, going out of business when confronted with these things, which a lot of uh, uh, companies had been. They actually were suing uh, people um, uh, for, for breaching these clauses, allegedly, and, and uh, in addition to, you know, uh, accounts for defamation and so forth. So um, what um, we did, we went into federal court in um, uh, in Tampa um, back in October. We got a preliminary injunction, and the um, noteworthy thing about um, the judge's ruling in this case at this point, um, it's still in litigation. Uh, trial is not scheduled for about another year, but the judge actually didn't rule directly on our unfairness theory, what the judge did uh, rule was, though, that, that the um, company would not be permitted to um, enforce these type of contracts, would not be uh, permitted to, to uh, use these uh, during the pendency. Uh, during the pendency of the litigation. And specifically, uh, what the court found is, and I'll quote a little bit from the opinion, is that um, in order to squelch comment and public discourse about its products, Roca Labs has, in fact, pursued and threatened to pursue consumers both by threatening criminal act sanctions, whole separate problem, <laughs> and civil action and financial loss for their comments. And as a result, in the context of this case, what is minimally necessary to ensure against Roca Labs' continued practice of making deceptive and unsubstantiated claims while this case is pending about the weight loss um, uh, attributes of the product is um, an, an injunction labs prior practice of pursuing and threatening to pursue consumers for their comments about its product. So we've got a favorable ruling 
but it's also you know, very you know, limited in terms of the context of this case. And also the unfairness analysis the Commission uses under Section 5 of the FTC Act is very fact-specific. So while we feel like we've got a very strong uh, case here, we've got uh, an expert opinion of uh, Professor Paul Pavlou from Temple University we submitted with the um, um, uh, preliminary injunction papers. We've got a lot of Commission precedent about um, uh, use of, uh, of, of bars on comparative advertising uh, between competitors. And there's a lot of, 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 of support for this, but whether or not this case would map on to other circumstances is a, an open question. And in fact, whether the judge will rule in our favor on our specific theory is an open question. Yeah. Eric, can you unpack Marin, that? Sorry, or, Marin, Marin. can I just jump in on one thing? Um, Carl just laid out two very serious harms that are caused by these clauses, right? The the censoring of the reviewer and, and stifling their freedom of speech, as well as the harm on all future consumers from having accurate and fulsome information to make their purchasing decisions. I would argue there's a third harm that occurs as well, and that's to all of the competing businesses that are playing by the rules with that unscrupulous company. Um, a number of sites, TripAdvisor being one, Yelp, uh, whoever you want to look at, a lot of these companies have algorithms that are going to either stack rank these companies or are going to give consumers the ability to compare them directly. And when all of a sudden you know you're playing by the rules and doing everything right and the guy down the street is inserting these unconscionable clauses into their contracts, now the small and medium-sized businesses are getting hurt as well. So there's a, there's a variety of victims of these clauses. Um, Eric, I wanted to jump back to you uh, on the, the court decision in this case and, and any of the other court decisions are they are they helping move the issue forward enough, or are they are they looking at these issues too narrowly? What's going on um, in that sense? Yeah, and I like the way that Carl framed it because in order for the FTC to reach Roca Labs' behavior, it had to rely upon its unfairness authority, which is fine. Although whenever I see unfairness authority from the FTC, I start to wonder why they didn't rely on their main tool of deceptive authority. Um, and uh, then it had to go and persuade a judge that that was a proper grounds and still hasn't been able to definitively resolve that. Um, we could also imagine that under contract theory, things like uh, unconscionability might apply. A court might strike down the contract saying that's just not a reasonable contract. Or the court might val invalidate the contract on public policy grounds. It might say that's just not the kind of contract we tolerate in our society. Um, so there are theories which can be used to combat the tools in court, but I don't, they're not hitting the hammer, uh, the nail on the head with the hammer perfectly. They're trying to fit it into existing formats. And that's one of the reasons I favor a new federal law, because I think then we will remove any of these clouds that exist over the existing re ways in which the tools, um, uh, the clauses are being invalidated. We would give a perfect tool that would tell everybody, stop it. Um, that's a great segue because the Senate passed the Consumer Review Freedom Act, I think it was just a few weeks ago, that was um, put forward by Senator Thune and Senator Schatz and a few other co-sponsors. We actually have Representative Issa here. I wondered if you wanted to make a statement about the House version of the bill. We think it's better than the Senate version. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. Which is that any time the executive branch relies on laws not intended to cover uh, a new or different claim, we run into the problem of we in the first branch are often complaining that, you know, they're exceeding their authority, it's overreach. In this case, it's a reach that needs to be addressed. 
the tools that we've given uh, even the Federal Trade Commission and so on are inaccurate for all cases. So even, as you said, I think, uh, Carl, you said it, even if they work in a couple of cases, it's a long adjudication. You have to find out if that square peg in that exact hole fits, when in fact, with the exception of a willing buyer, willing seller entering into a contract in true, when they truly receive something for limiting their free speech, free speech should be presumptively an absolute right. And these contracts are invalid because they're not actually delivering a, a, a reasonable limitation on free speech. And that's one of our, our, our goals is if you enter into a, uh, a, a medical testing uh, situation in which you agree for entering this program, you're not going to talk about it. That is historically reasonable. If you enter into a confidentiality agreement in which a, uh, a, uh, a trade secret is told, there's a reason. But in the case of simply companies who only want good news and want to find a way to gag bad news, that's where we have to have a broad and sweeping law that simply says you don't have to go to a federal agency, you have a right to do it, and no, no contract shall be valid if it attempts to limit that. Do you want to speak to the content of the bill a little bit, or we can turn to the panel? You know, the, look, the, the panel, we want to know the problems, and we want to constantly, in both the House and Senate, say, are we being broad enough? Are we being that absolute? Because our challenge is we want to be broad enough not to have agencies having to enforce it and not having judges uh, go through an entire trial. On their face, these should be summary judgments that you don't have a right to limit speech, uh, particularly when almost every company, and I'm a former businessman, every company finds a way, especially weight loss, to have somebody talk about how great the product works. It is inherently deceptive if it doesn't work for somebody to limit that speech. And that's exactly, uh, and, and Carl, that's why that's one of those poster children that we understand if you've got somebody saying something works, you absolutely should not be able to limit somebody saying, I used it and it doesn't work. It is inherently wrong. The same as every restaurant that, that posts, and I've been to them, multiple stars and all the right awards. Let's be honest. They post the award. They don't post the criticism. And that's, that's what we're hoping to, uh, to clearly change. But I think the one thing that I'm here and, and wanted to listen is we keep asking, are we creating a law that creates let litigation and, uh, and uh, administrative action, or are we creating a law that limits the reason for the administration to have to weigh in and clearly limits cases from going through the courts for a protracted period of times to try to understand our legislation? And, and I think Senator Thune and I both feel strongly that the latter is what we have to achieve, something that is clear and simple that reiterates that the First Amendment is the First Amendment when it comes to uh, – saying you don't like something, uh, recognizing that you must state you don't like it, you cannot, in fact, falsely claim something. And that balancing act is, is where we've been for 240 years. But please continue. It's, uh, I, I didn't intend to become part of this. <laughs> I'll speak briefly to that. Um, we've taken a careful look at both the House bill and the Senate bill. 
Uh, we like them both. Um, the primary difference is which enforcement agency is constructed as the repository for uh, enforcement at the federal level. Um, we think it creates the right boundaries, uh, not only giving a specific enforcement authority against the practice, but also nullifying enforcement of these clauses from the get-go. Um, and uh, leaving open the uh, potential for malicious or false um, uh, reviews that are damaging to a business's legitimate operations for being appropriately um, remedied in uh, a court process like they have been um, historically. Yes, so we're very pleased <clears throat> with the bill. I think some, some criticism of legislation like this is that it uh, takes away tools of businesses to protect their reputation. Um, I know in the, in the, in the uh, strategic lawsuits against public participation issue, um, there was some concern about access to justice. Eric, what do you think about this legislation? Is it uh, narrow enough? Does it address the issue in the right way? Uh, I'm a fan of the legislation, um, and so, and I'd say that if you know, you word here, um, but uh, the legislation is, I think, particularly well constructed on trying to cover the all the different tricks that we've seen businesses engage in. Um, and so we've seen the contracts and we've seen the fines and we've seen the uh, IP assignments and the legislation, I think, very helpfully covers all of those. Uh, the one place I flagged as a potential place that businesses could still get a little bit frisky is this boundary between protection of trade secrets and calling every interaction with a customer a business's confidential information. And I think that's the one place I think there could be a little bit of a wedge, but I think that the law would do a really terrific job of sending exactly the right messages to courts. If you see a clause like this, tell the business, stop it, get out of our courtroom. The only other way I think it could be improved is not structurally within the bill, but I think it would be perfectly companion slap law. Anti-slap laws would say if you're bringing a lawsuit because you're trying to suppress socially beneficial speech, the case should end early and there should be a fee shift. The attorney fees uh, should be paid by the defend uh, for, for the defendant's attorney's fees should be paid. Federal anti-slap law and then saying if any business is fool enough, foolish enough to go into court, then we have a fast lane to end the case early and the business would have to pay the defendant's attorney's fees. I, I totally agree, and I just wanted to um, comment on one of the things that Representative Isis said, where he said that both he and Senator Thune were struggling with, you know, making the, the right law that's not going to lead to more litigation. And I think, you know, it, into, if we're talking about consumer reviews on the Internet, right, the Internet platforms are a gatekeeper, obviously, for those reviews. And giving us a tool like federal legislation that is not, you know, the patchwork state by state or, or court by ruling by court ruling, just saying across the United States – just take a look at this law and informing both our reviewers and the businesses the status of the legal, the legal premises around the reviews right now would cut off litigation really early before the complaint even gets drafted, right? The first uh, bullying email or harassing message. And it would be really hard, I imagine, for a plaintiff's attorney uh, under Rule 11 to sign their name to a complaint when knowing that this law was on the books. against attorneys under Rule 11, which technically are a sanction on the attorney. Not so, uh, so not necessarily. The other, the other fee shifting is a little broader. It's more a plaintiff defendant. Totally agree. Uh, no, I'm not necessarily sanctioning, endorsing sanctions against the attorneys as much as saying 
the law, both bills as drafted from our point of view, um, would be putting the plaintiff's attorney on notice before they start drafting that complaint. They're not going to be able to, once their client uh, has been alerted from a platform like TripAdvisor or Angie's List or whoever, you know, you can't bring a lawsuit based on these clauses. It's, it's not legal. The clause itself is not legal. I don't think there's any chance that you're going to find any uh, ethical attorney who's going to sign such a complaint. So I'm not talking about the remedy as much as the professional responsibility piece in the drafting. And if I can just extend that, uh, in many cases, laws like this are a challenge to creative plaintiff lawyers. Okay, I know what Congress wanted. How can I get around it? And one of the, I think, the strengths of the bill is that it would be really tricky even for the, the most clever plaintiff's lawyer to come up with a way around uh, the bill. Um, and I think that's one of its best strengths. Yeah, well, it sounds like businesses are pretty creative in finding ways to uh, either, you know, scare consumers into not posting reviews or um, put in clauses to get them to take it down. I'm, w I'm wondering from, from George, are there other issues consumers are facing online when they're dealing with, with these contracts? You know, uh, maybe Carl, you know, what are some of the other complaints you're seeing with businesses that are kind of in the same vein that people we should be aware of as, as like we said, SLAP and uh, and anti-disparagement clauses kind of go hand in hand. Are there other ones in this realm that we should be thinking about? Uh, well, I would say uh, first briefly on the slap uh, suits. Um, we've taken a look at that bill, too, and we are sympathetic to the issues there and the similarities about how uh, that um, can be abused. Um, we think there may be some scope problems in the way that the bill is currently constructed, so uh, we think it needs to be um, given a closer look, but uh, we think that's an issue worth looking at, definitely. Um, Non-disparagement clauses are simply one of the more recent anti-consumer additions to the standard form boilerplate consumer contracts and that business legal teams draft up and are constantly tinkering with and revising and adding to to, in our view, stack the deck further and further against consumers by pulling the rug out from under their basic legal rights and protections under common law. Uh, another example of unfair fine print is a clause under which the consumer supposedly agrees not to ever take the business to court, no matter how harmful and widespread its misconduct might be. Instead, the consumer supposedly agrees to take any complaint to a private arbitrator, typically often handpicked by the business and already familiar to it, and who is not even required to follow the law. And there are often other accompanying restrictions and requirements that make bringing the claim in arbitration so inconvenient and costly for the consumer that it can't be justified. And so the business, even for potentially widespread and egregious conduct. Again, this problem goes beyond the Internet, but signing agreements digitally makes it worse in that it's harder as a practical matter to know what's in the sales agreement you're signing. Uh, I don't want what I said earlier and what I'm saying now to be misheard as saying that the main problem here is that it's a surprise to consumers, because I agree with what everybody else here has said, that it's a problem because it's unfairly pushing the consumer into a position where they're giving up uh, fundamental legal rights and protections. But I do think the surprise is an additional uh, harm and an additional factor. The last time I got a new mobile phone, 
As we were wrapping up the purchase, the salesman handed me his digital machine and the electronic pen and showed me where to click the box, saying I agreed with the terms of the sales agreement, which the box also said that I had already read and fully understood. When I asked him if I could see the agreement so that I could actually read it, he said he didn't have the agreement available in the store. So out of curiosity, I told him I needed to see it, and I asked him to get it from wherever. He had to call corporate headquarters, their legal department, and it took more than half an hour of waiting with my wife and two impatient fidgeting teenagers. Now, how many consumers are going to go through that? And the agreement was 50 pages long. How many consumers will read that and be able to understand it? Non-disparagement clauses and forced arbitration clauses are just two of the many one-sided provisions being slipped into the fine print of standard form, boilerplate, take-it-or-leave-it consumer contracts that are taking away the consumer's voice and the consumer's basic rights and protections. We are working on that bigger issue of unfair fine print, and there are a lot of issues that need to be looked at and sides of it that need to be examined. But while we keep working on that bigger issue, I hope we are ready to start now by ending the use of non-disparagement clauses by seeing this bill enacted in the coming weeks. And I'm happy to answer anybody's questions about that bill. Feel free to give me a call. We're here in town um, and uh, happy to talk to anybody. And we'll leave some time for questions at the end in a few minutes. Um, Did anyone else want to comment on sort of other consumer issues you're seeing maybe on TripAdvisor that, uh, that, that you're hearing from, from individuals who are engaging with these businesses or, or any particular cases, I think, to just hit home with the anti-disparagement clauses that you've seen um, that kind of brought this issue to light? Um, sure. So uh, thinking about the, some of the cases that – on non-disparagement clauses that have taken place recently that I think were um, interesting or alarming. Uh, the first one Professor Goldman spoke about earlier was in the Southern District where the, the judge uh, granted the motion to dismiss saying that the reviews were not defamatory but allowed the lawsuit to continue based on the uh, potential breach of contract, which was just very alarming, right, allowing uh, contractual language to trump honest, uh, reliable speech. Uh, another one that uh, made a lot of headlines was the Palmer versus Cleargear case um, a couple of years back. Uh, Ms. Palmer actually testified to the Senate Commerce Committee in connection with Senator Thune's bill. And for those that aren't familiar with that, that was a situation where Ms. Palmer purchased, I believe it was a $20 item uh, from an Internet retailer, and the item never showed up. And so I believe she canceled her order, and she wrote a negative review um, on a, a website. And fast forward I, one or two years, I believe, all of a sudden the Clear Gear noticed the review and uh, reached out to her and told her that they were assessing a $3,500 fine against her for violating the non-disparagement clause for no negative reviews that was in their terms of service. And there was even a question of whether they had revised their terms of service to add that after the fact. It was really um, a, a really bad facts, quite frankly. And when the Palmers rightfully didn't pay that $3,500 fine, 
uh, Cleargear sent it to the credit agencies who reported it, and the Palmer's credit dropped, and she listed a, a whole host of actual impacts on their lives, on loans they couldn't get, and actual impacts that they felt financially because of this one review. And you know, they were fortunate enough to hook up with a public citizen who took their case on on a, um, you know, on a pro bono basis. That's not something that most people could have done. So most people in that situation probably end up with ruined credit, quite frankly. Um, and, you know, she was able to adjudicate it in the courts through public citizen. Um, I don't know whether – I mean, Cleargear then folded up. I don't know if any assets were ever covered, if they were ever made whole, what happened there. The other case that I think is interesting was adjudicated actually more in the court of public opinion than actual courts um, in – Two summers ago, in the summer of 2014, it was noticed that a, a small B&B in upstate New York, or Hudson Valley, New York, rather, um, had included in their contracts with brides and grooms a clause that said, it was actually a very snarky clause, it said something along the lines of, we know that brides and grooms love us here, but your guests may not totally get how awesome we are. So control your guests. And if any of your guests write negative reviews about their experience here at the wedding. You owe us $500 for each review, and it's coming out of the security deposit you already gave us, right? Unbelievable. I mean, now we're not only trying to exercise prior restraint on an individual speech that you have a contractual relationship with, but everybody that they know in their family as well. Um, and the New York Post picked that up and ran a story on it, and within about 12 hours, um, Yelp and TripAdvisor were getting flooded with reviews and comments of, of this place. Now, those are not first-hand reviews, so they didn't meet the guidelines for TripAdvisor or Yelp, and they either didn't get published or, or came down, but the, the population of consumers spoke very quickly and very loudly, saying, you know, that is, that's, that's violating social norms, and that's violating what we expect out of business relationships. Um, and I, I think it's really instructive as to what the American consumers expect in their, in their agreements and expect not to be in their agreements with the businesses that they work with. Yeah. I'll just add just one other dimension to the Roca Labs uh, fine print um, that they were using um, up until we got the preliminary injunction is different versions of their um, agreement would have buried in there not just their right to sue you for leaving a negative review, but they also said that, by the way, the $480 you paid for this um, uh, fiber product that uh, we're claiming will give you dramatic weight loss. Um, the $480 price is actually a subsidized discounted price, and the, really the full price is $1,500. <laughs> and if you breach the contract, including by leaving a negative review, we can immediately charge you the balance of the full price. And the commission alleged that that was deceptive. Um, straight up um, without having to get into, um, you know, the, the um, unfairness doctrine. And, uh, you know, basically Roca Labs would take that fine print and they would put that into a notice you got along with some instructions and whatnot that you would receive in the package with your product when it arrived, saying if you um, leave a, you know, breach the contract and leave a negative review, um, you're going to be charged this full price. So in terms of the iceberg problem, you know, we, we would probably have a difficult time counting who would see that piece of paper and decide game over right there, even if the product, you know, didn't, didn't work for them, as we believe the science suggests it, it wouldn't. So um, that's just another dimension that, that um, 
needs to just be, uh, I think, probably on the table in terms of what we're looking at, in terms of how clever lawyers can try to come up with different ways to kind of work around um, sometimes, um, you know, straight-up prohibitions on things. Um, so maybe a last thoughts from anyone, and then we'll take a few questions from the audience. Like, Eric, do you have any sort of final thoughts? Um, Yes. <laughs> uh, no, I just want to reinforce um, this bill, is, in some sense, is a little bill. Um, it's not trying to change huge segments of the economy or anything like that, but it's a crucial piece of the overall market mechanism. And we talked about that at the beginning, but going back to George's concerns about abusive anti consumer clauses, one of the ways we can combat those is by letting the public, court of public opinion decide. And so allowing consumers to express their experiences with the businesses, make sure that not only can we fight against uh, bad uh, products, but we can also fight against abusive terms that are used with good products. Um, so this bill really becomes a foundation for the entire ecosystem to make sure that we can hold businesses accountable for their poor choices. And um, the category of truthful negative information is the most imperiled type of speech or con uh, content. Um, anywhere. Um, it's so easy for that information to be suppressed or bullied or never proffered in the first place. And so to me, this bill is really about trying to stake out a little bit more ground to make sure that we give more breathing room for this highly endangered type of content. Um, I agree with everything you said. <laughs> and I, I would say uh, two, two final thoughts I would throw out there is, you know, it's easy to think, you know, that this is a little bill or, you know, that consumer reviews are not that important of a uh, type of speech. There have been, I mean, this is a very studied sector right now of business, right? It's new in the last 10, 15 years. It's really emerging. And uh, a study by the consumerist last year indicated that 70% of Americans now consult uh, consumer reviews before making purchasing decisions. From from our vertical in travel, it's much higher. You're talking closer to 90% of people looking at these reviews. So this is real world impact, and it's real dollars that people are trying to figure out how to spend, how to spend efficiently, and um, you don't want your family vacation ruined, right? Uh, so it, it is important. And the other thing I would say is this bill uh, is really important and is excellent. The anti-slap bill is as well, and they're not – while they have the same end objective of ensuring that the speech that Professor Gomez was just referencing is enabled to be out there and for people to evaluate it and read it and process it as they want to, they're different – they attack different um, methods that the bad actors take to stifle that speech. And so this really is not a situation where if one passes, the other should die. The two of them work together really well to protect consumers and the, the entire uh, marketplace uh, of information. And I'm just going to put in a plug for um, if you are a consumer or if you know somebody who has sort of encountered any uh, clause like this in any contract, feel like, you know, you've um, encountered some sort of, you know, suppression of, of your ability to leave a review as well as, you know, any other of uh, the, you know, the myriad ways in which the, you know, the FTC is looking to protect consumers from deception and unfair practices, go to FTC.gov. Fill out an online complaint. You know, we don't necessarily act on every complaint, but having that database of people uh, leaving their stories and telling us about problems they have with businesses is really critical. So FTC.gov for that, and as well as, you know, numerous consumer and business education uh, tools that you can uh, use to help empower yourself.
Um, I would uh, say three things. First, um, when uh, Brad mentioned the consumerist, that's us. We're the cons- <laughs> that's one of our publications. So we definitely um, you know, have been <laughs> actively engaged there. Um, secondly, I would say that looking at this not from the perspective of somebody who wants to write a review, but somebody who wants to buy something uh, that's been um, vetted and tested in the marketplace. Uh, If you don't want every single purchase you make uh, to be a crapshoot, it's important that word of mouth be able to spread without uh, restriction. And uh, this bill will really help do that. And then the third thing that I would say just about the, um, the slap suit uh, bill, I just repeat that um, I think there is an important concept there that needs to be um, distilled. Uh, I'm not sure if in its current form it's ready yet, but uh, that's something that we definitely want to work with others on. Thanks, everyone. I think we had a question over here, yeah. not go on a trip or even buy a cup of coffee usually without consulting TripAdvisor or Yelp or one of the other uh, review sites. But one of the things, and Eric, I completely agree with you, this is a narrowly tailored approach, both this and the anti-slap bill, and and by expanding to kind of an attack on click-through nexus is a little dangerous. But people on the other side would say there's no recourse for a business. So somebody gives me a slanderous attack, what do I do? So I was hoping you could address a bit more on the defamation and common law recourses on the books today for businesses, as well as expand some examples of where we as a society have actually found contract provisions void against public policy. Uh, let me uh, start focus on your first point, which is, um, so what about businesses that are being injured by consumers who um, are out to get them? Um, it could be uh, that um, they're unhappy uh, consumers and they're willing to say whatever it takes. It could be they're jilted lovers, competitors who are going and trying to tweak uh, business because they want to cause harm. Um, I want to make sure that we're clear that that is a totally separate issue than the, the bill that we've been discussing today because the bill we're discussing today um, would uh, uh, eliminate restrictions on consumers being able to share their views. Um, it doesn't mean that they can say anything they ever want. Then we go back to our default set of laws that apply when people share their views and people have to be accountable for their words if they exceed their legal rights to speak up. Um, So we have laws like defamation on the books today, and those laws um, are not perfect like any laws, Um, but we have seen many examples where consumers have overstated the situation, sometimes maliciously, and have been found to have engaged in defamatory reviews and have been held accountable for that. Um, If I'm a business owner bringing a defamation lawsuit, I'm not ecstatic about that, but the contractual suppression of the reviews in the first place is completely orthogonal to it. You could imagine a business wanting to put in place a contract that says, you will not leave defamatory reviews. But what does that contract clause do? It doesn't do anything that the law doesn't already restrict, so it adds no value to the process. That's the only possible thing that a prospective contract would have been possibly legitimate, but would have been prevented by this bill. So 
the, the, the defamation and other laws that exist around to help businesses when they're the subject of an attack online um, give a counterbalance. Um, I, I can't stress enough. We do see those cases, but far more often what I see is the business going and saying that was defamatory, but really it wasn't, and using that threat as a way of driving content off the Internet. So for every legitimate case of defamation, we have dozens or hundreds of cases where content is being driven off because it wasn't defamatory, but the law, the threat was enough to drive it away. Anti-SLAPP is super helpful for that. I will add that anti-SLAPP is also an iceberg problem. It only addresses the cases once they've gone to court. But the way it goes in practice is that a business sends a threatening email or letter, says, I'm going to sue you, and I'm going to take I'm going to sue you, and I'm going to take everything you own because you have defamed me. Now, at that point, uh, uh, the person receiving that letter has one or two choices. They say, bring it. Anti-slap laws will protect me if we have a federal one that's nice and robust. Um, or they can say, I'm not going to jeopardize my house. This is a single review. I'm not making any money on this. I don't have enough of a stake in this game to bet my financial future. I don't want to spend years being torn up by some lawyer in depositions and in uh, mounds of paper. That content's just coming off. And so really we have a, 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 the, the problem with anti-slap laws isn't that, they, that they're not a, a good solution. They're a great solution, but they're an incomplete solution. The real meat or the real rubber meets the road when people get those negative letters and they act on them without taking it to court. Anti-slap gives them a little more comfort to stand up and have a backbone, but most people still won't take advantage of that. That's a set yet separate problem that we ultimately need to address. There was a question in the back. Hi, Todd Wiggins of uh, Local DC um, Blogger about events, but I'd like to ask you, I know this sounds a little bit superfluous to the direct consumer issue, but as you said, 20 years ago, we didn't have uh, the Internet, so we didn't have the open forums where people can comment on just about anything. And I know that they, there's an option that the public has if a rating, uh, there's a low rating for a comment, whether it's defamatory or inaccurate or for whatever reason, people can vote it down and it will be suppressed or it won't necessarily be seen uh, as visibly as the other comments. But do you ever get into defamatory um, or situations where you're defending or uh, criticizing or going after someone who wrote something that could be considered harmful to the general public or onerous in some very negative way? That's, that's um, so... I think it's fair to say you know, every internet or intermediary platform like TripAdvisor uh, has their own approach. Um, a number have vote-down approaches. Others have uh, filters of what's visible and what's not visible. Uh, TripAdvisor works in a black-and-white approach. Uh, if reviews meet all of our guidelines, we will publish them. If they don't meet all of our guidelines, they will not be published. And if they get published and then are later looked at again, decide they weren't they actually didn't meet one of the guidelines, they'll get taken down. So the default sort is going to be chronological, not by how accurate does the general populace think this is or how popular is this review, um, although there's many sorting choices. So we, you know, when you're operating at scale, like a lot of these companies are, um, 
you, you, you certainly can't read every review but with human eyes as they come in, and even less likely you can't fact-check them. So what you need to do is you set up some guidelines that you expect everybody, both the reviewers and the businesses, to play by, and you uh, very stringently monitor and police those. And the answer to the question of, okay, so we get one, we get a review that maybe it doesn't hit the defamatory threshold. So, you know, the, the defamation suit that Professor Goldman was referencing isn't in play, but it's a really negative review. It's, it's, it could hurt the business, right? There's a lot in there. It's, it's just uh, aggressive. Much like with political speech, I would, I would represent that the answer to that aggressive speech that you don't like isn't to stifle the speech or take it away. It's to answer it with good speech that you do like and allow those that are looking at it to evaluate it, just like you would in a debate or when you're making decisions on things. You look at both sides and you decide who you trust. And you know what? If that review that you read is totally contradictory from the six before it and the six after it, well, that's someone that you're probably not going to put a lot of weight in. And that's what we see from users on our site all the time. The average person is looking at, they're not looking at one review, which is what business owners are so sure, right? There's this one horrible review, and this is going to kill my business. Yet every empirical study that we do says the average TripAdvisor user is going to look at roughly 12 reviews, right? So that one, if it's the standout, is going to be totally put aside. National Consumers League. Thank you for this, this great panel. I'd like to flip this around a little bit. Um, I've seen reports where of, of companies that exist that businesses can hire essentially to write good reviews about them, uh, and that this is a this is a problem on sites like Amazon and TripAdvisor and Yelp, where consumers depend on the veracity of the reviews to make informed decisions. Is there a role for either the Trade Commission or Congress to play? in addressing this problem, that these businesses exist essentially to write uh, false good reviews? Well, the commission actually has taken action against companies that have, um, I'm trying to think of the specific examples off the top of my head, um, uh, Reverb, I think Learn and Master are two of the cases we've had. I think there have been another one more recently involving, um, I think it's called Amerifreight. I don't want to, uh, to you know, uh, <laughs> misassign, uh, blame it. But there's, there's cases in which, you know, companies have, you know, manipulated reviews in some ways by, like, paying for positive reviews that um, are not, um, uh, whereas there's no disclosure that people were compensated for the reviews. I mean, I think the commission's general stance is laid out in, you know, guidelines that um, uh, have been issued to, to help businesses about um, uh, endorsements and talking specifically about, um, you know, any sort of, I mean, any sort of compensated endorsement. I mean, if somebody's really used the product and they're talking about their real experience and, and they're just not disclosing that they were being paid to leave the review, that may be one set of facts, whereas another would be this person hasn't used the product at all. They're just they're just making up something, which is sort of deceptive at an entirely you know different level. Where it isn't probably going to be something that you know even disclosing isn't going to help. Um, you know, I am totally making this up. I mean, it it wouldn't be um, um, it would be something that could well fall under the, you know the commission's you know existing authority under Section Five of the FTC Act. But you know, there's there's probably you know going to be evolution in that marketplace as well, and we'll just have to see how you know well you know we're able to kind of keep up with that. It's sometimes you know difficult to detect when that's happening just by the very nature of the problem. So um, that's a challenge. But I think from a legal standpoint, you know. Um, if consumers don't understand that that um, review um, is basically, you know, being compensated or that, um, 
you know, the, the reviews being made up, you're well into Section 5 deception territory, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, the New York Attorney General also, about a year and a half ago, took, undertook a big uh, effort in identifying some of these companies and uh, going after them and settled with, I forget the exact number at this point, but close to 10, I think, um, and making them based on laws that were already on the books on deceptive trade practices and uh, fraud and things of the sort. So to answer your I mean, you're right. You did turn it to head. It's, it's sort of like a whole s separate section. I don't know if you guys have until 2 o'clock free, but um, uh, the one thing I would say from a purely commercial point of view is obviously we would love any and all support we can get uh, from law enforcement in going after these like very legitimate bad actors that are harming consumers. Um, but from the from a service, right? Those types of reviews are definitely a breach of our terms of service. There's your private cause of action. You could also claim fraud and consumer deception uh, claims against them. But, you know, a platform like ours and really any platform that is the, um, that doesn't have a stake in the game, not write a review of the product that I'm selling, but rather let's just look at a lot of reviews and just, you know, compare and contrast other companies' things. We have no incentive at all in if a review comes in, if it's a good review or a bad review. Don't care. All we want is an accurate review, right? Because the first time you decide to rely on TripAdvisor and book your trip to Cabo and you get down there with your family and it's a totally different experience than we told you you were going to have, you're never coming back to TripAdvisor again. You've lost your trust in us and that, that's a slippery slope, right? It'll, it can fall apart very quickly. Fortunately, you know, the numbers indicate the opposite for us. People are coming more and more often, and that's because we understand that the veracity of the reviews is of critical importance, and we're investing in it, right? We have lots and lots of automated systems in the back end checking things. We have, you know, a team of people, 300 people around the world, you know, specialists within that team that are doing sting operations, buying these reviews, going after these companies, signing up in, as employees of these companies, all these types of things to really go after them and, you know, take them down from any angle we can to protect consumers. So there is, you know, marketplace reality is going to, is going to encourage platforms to do it, but absolutely there is, you know, we'll take all the help we can get in that fight. Any last questions? Well, thank you all for coming. Thanks to our panelists for coming out. Um, the Internet clearly has brought a lot of these issues to light. Um, the cases that came up are, are some of the things that really raise awareness up on the Hill for what does have to be done in Congress to, uh, to protect consumers. So um, I encourage you to follow Carl's recommendation to uh, let, let the commission know if, if you've experienced any of these to push this forward. And... Uh, Keep on the lookout for additional uh, briefings that the Internet Caucus Advisory Committee has. And I also echo Tim's uh, invitation to the State of the Net Conference on January 25th to hear about a lot more issues related to the Internet and the economy um, and these issues we're currently facing. So thank you, everyone. <laughs>